right. Oh, I'm okay with an echo. Welcome to 2022. I hope you're all doing okay. Um, bittersweet for me, obviously uh, some of you that know me um, know that my father passed away um, during the holiday season. And um, last week uh, we were down for the memorial service. Um, which, you know, it, it's, it is very bittersweet. Obviously, we grieve, but um, he loved Jesus. And so I know where he is, and I know that he's worshiping Jesus. So um, that I have much hope for, as we all should. So as we start today... Um, what is our theme? I think Justice talked about it uh, last week. What's our theme here at Liberty this year? Run the race, run the race, right? It's the theme that Pastor Bond has been preaching and persuading us to. Run the race. It comes from the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. If you want to turn there, you can. It won't be our primary text today, but um, you might want to read along with me. I think it kind of sets our course here for today. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls." Amen. What, according to these verses, is the key to running the race and finishing? It's looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So I hope this year, as it, it comes along, I hope this year for us, um, we would fix our eyes on Jesus. We would fix our eyes, keep our eyes on him, and um, uh, look to him to help us finish this race. With that as a backdrop, it might not be any surprise to any of you this morning that it is my ambition to preach Christ to you. I don't know how this morning I could do anything else. He is, to be sure, the most, the most glorious person in all the universe and beautiful beyond human description. Secondarily, I want you to have a thirst for this wonderful book of Hebrews. So as I prepared this sermon, there has been this continual theme that has been running through my mind as I've been praying and preparing. Help me to preach 
an irresistible Christ. Help me to preach an irresistible Christ. A Christ that is irresistible to those of you who are Christians here this morning. Because I know if your experience is, is much like mine, there are times when there are ebbings and flowings in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that there are times when our feelings for him grow cold. When our hearts seem to be characterized by apathy and complacency. In fact, it seems at times, does it not for you, that our feelings for the Lord Jesus Christ get frozen in, in a kind of concrete complacency. And it's not that we would give up Christ, it's not that we would turn our backs on Christ or cease to believe in Christ. It's simply that our affections have cooled. And I want very much for us as a church, having been made people in the image of God, which includes emotions, to know something of what the Puritans spoke of when they talked about a felt Christ. To those of you who are in Christ this morning, I want to preach to you an irresistible Christ. And for those of you who are here this morning, and you're not Christians, I want to preach to you an irresistible Christ. Because there is no other way of saying it, at least any way I can think of, if you are without Jesus Christ this morning, then you are a sinner, and the condition of your soul is in a desperate state. You will perish eternally without him. And by the grace of God, I want to preach Jesus Christ to you in, in such a way this morning that you will find yourself irresistibly drawn to him, that you must embrace him, and that you must embrace him now, today, at this place. And then perhaps today you will wonder in your own heart, why in the world have I ever resisted him for this long? And for those of you who are here this morning as young people, young adults, it's to you I want to preach an irresistible Christ. You understand that the Lord Jesus about whom I'm about to speak is the same, very same Jesus who welcomed children, who loved children, and who embraced children. In fact, it's the very same Jesus He's the one who rebuked adults because they wanted to keep children from coming to him. But you must understand something, young men and young women, boys and girls, on that great and final day, God will take Christians to heaven, not Christians and their children. And if you, and you here in this church has ha have had an exceedingly wonderful privilege given to you if you've been part of this church. You have heard the gospel preached in many different ways, on many occasions, and in all probability you have heard the gospel from your own faithful parents and from catechism and IGY teachers. But I want to tell you this morning, it is a dangerous thing to be given this great privilege and to persist in waiting for yet another time. 
So with everything in me this morning, young men and women, I want to tell you there is no good or wise reason to delay any longer. You must come to Jesus Christ today, right now, because every single day you fail to act upon your privilege, you put your soul in a more, most dangerous position and condition. I want to preach to you this morning of a Christ who is irresistible. And the reason why I feel so deeply about this this morning is because of the passage that is before us, or will be before us in a moment. I admit right from the get-go, church, that I am exceedingly over my head. It is deep beyond knowing. But my confidence this morning is that it is the intended purpose of the Spirit of God to exalt Christ. It is the purpose of this passage to exalt Christ. And so I have every confidence that He... The Holy Spirit will come and give us the help that we need this morning. Now turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be looking out and camping out on the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made himself purge, when he, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Dearly Father, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and enlighten us this morning, that your word would go forth. I pray that it would honor you. I pray you'd get me out of the way and your word would go forth this morning. And Jesus, we love you. Amen. So a bit of context. In, of this book of Hebrew, of this book of Hebrews, in all probability, it was written to a small group of Jewish Christians who were living in Rome. It is my personal belief that the book of Hebrews was a sermon preached by Paul and written down by Luke. And the reason I believe that, or at least that's my personal belief, is because it has many of Paul's phrasings, but it it is written in Luke's unique style. So that's my personal opinion. However, we're not given an author of this book. But we know it was written to former Jewish folks, now Christians. They had heard the gospel preached by those who had actually seen and witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ with their own eyes. They themselves, they themselves had not seen him, 
but they had heard from those who had. And by the grace of God, these Jewish people living in Rome are brought out of the shadows of Judaism into the full substance of Christianity. These Jewish Christians, they're not young in the faith. They have been in Christ for quite some time. They are not new converts. They are not novices. In fact, they're mature enough where they ought to be in teaching roles within the body of Christ. They are not new. They have walked with Christ for quite some time now. The problem is, as you begin to read this letter, is that their world was falling apart. Sounds familiar, huh? You see, coming out of Judaism into Christianity had provided no worldly advantages for them. In fact, quite to the contrary, as a result of their confessing and professing faith in Jesus Christ, there was one trial that came at them after another, one threat after another, one act of violence after another, and persecution after another. See, friends, while Rome was ambivalent towards people of Jewish faith, Rome had a very very clearly defined feelings about those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. Rome hated all things Christian. And in fact, if you've ever read any early history from the first century, you've discovered that the Roman persecution of Christians was notorious. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers of this very thing later on in his book in, in chapter 10. You don't have to go there, I'll read it. When he says this, chapter 10, verse 32. But recall, or remember, the former days in which after you were illuminated, or received the light, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, and that means publicly, by both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And how that, that goes is they stood beside or side by side with those who were persecuted. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven can't wait to get there amen but the point is you see the battery of persecutions the ridicule insult loss of privilege seizure seizure of property i mean let me ask you something today church how much would we endure ridicule persecution seizure of property would your devotion to jesus christ extend that far and what's more, you see, these Christians, they had, they, they've got eyes to see what's ahead. They know what's ahead. Nero has ascended to the throne. Hungry lions are caged in the Colosseum. Their allegiance to Christ is about to be put to the greatest test. And you can imagine, they're not, they aren't any different than you or I would be at that very moment asking the same questions that we would be asking. Where is God in all of this? Does he care? 
He's supposed to be our Savior, our, our Shepherd, and, and our Lord. And look, look at all that's coming down on us. And what we hear is the worst is still yet to come. Maybe we ought to go back to Judaism. At least it's safe. It's not polytheism. We're not embracing the Roman pantheon of gods. It's, it's close to Christianity. We really need a word from God, and all we hear is silence. But then suddenly, quite unexpectedly, a word begins to rumble through the Roman underground. A letter has arrived, and just at the right time. Most likely, in the privacy of a home, a small group of Jewish Christians had gathered together. A man, perhaps one of their leaders, stands and he unrolls the parchment and he begins to read aloud these words. Hebrews 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. Church, hearing those words in the midst of their situation, there were two facts that would have shot through their minds. Number one, we can't doubt God. He is not the uninvolved first cause of some sort of philosophical system. He knows the plight of His people. He is aware of who they are, where they are, what they're enduring at this very moment. And what's more, He has proven Himself to speak to those people that He loves. And how do we know that? Because He spoke to our forefathers. Bits and pieces here and there over a 1,500 year period. It's our Old Testament. He used those great men of old, the prophets, and He was in them and He was speaking through them. And not only was He speaking relevant and timely, he, His manner of communication was never boring. He spoke at various times and in various ways. You know it, right? From reading your Old Testament. God spoke to Adam, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God spoke to Jacob in a dream. He spoke to Moses face to face. He spoke to Elijah in a still small voice. He spoke to Ezekiel in, in a vision. And then, when men like these and other men like them turned around to make that revelation known to people like us, they used variety. David sang songs. Solomon wrote wise saying, the Proverbs. Malachi used questions and answers. Ezekiel performed bizarre symbolic acts. Amos gave direct oracles. Haggai preached sermons. Now imagine from their Jewish heritage all those deep-seated feelings of comfort and peace that would have been brought to the surface after hearing these first words from this letter. Those are our people. God spoke to them when they needed it most. 
No. Perhaps we can't understand all that's happening to us at this present moment, but we can't. We can't doubt God. He spoke to us. But then, as they heard the words that followed, but in these last days spoken to us by his Son, a second sensation would have rifled through their minds. We can't go back. Judaism won't do. The God who spoke to our fathers has spoken again. It's no longer an option for us to return to the old ways. Now, friends, there is a contrast that appears in the original text that we don't see easily in our English Bibles. A very strong antithesis or contrast that gets to the idea of what the writer is trying to say. Because see, on one hand, the writer says, God spoke through the prophets. That's easy enough to understand. But, when he makes, but then he makes a radical contrast when he says, but in these days, he has spoken to us, in the original text, he has spoken to us in Son. Not in the Son, in Son. And you see, when that kind of construction appears in the original, it is for the purpose of stretching the nature of the one whom God has spoken. In other words, in the past, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets, people like you, people like me, ordinary garden variety people, the same kind of people that have the same kind of struggles that we all have. And we're thankful for that. God used them, but they were just men, just men. But now, in these last days, the new age, God's word has come to us in a person who possesses the quality of being God's own son. Now let me see if I can illustrate this for you. You remember that scene in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, up on a mountain where Jesus is suddenly transfigured before Peter, James, and John. You remember that scene? I mean, it's amazing. I, I, I wouldn't even, it would, it would just make me probably fall on my face. I'm sure even on our best day, we can't begin to imagine what took place there. But suddenly, the very Son of God is seen, as it were, as the radiance of his divine glory pours forth. And Peter and James and John, they see this but they also notice that a couple other people are there talking with Jesus. Moses is there, and Elijah is there. And Peter, you know, you know Peter, right? His response is more than just a practical one. He really thinks that he's got his theology straight. You see, here's Moses. He's the giver of the law. Here's Elijah, he's the representative of the entire prophetic order. Moses and Elijah, law and prophets, it's the Old Testament scriptures. And now, here is Peter's master, Jesus, the third in a great line of revealers of the word of God. And so what does Peter say? Lord, 
It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Isn't that great? Moses, Elijah, Jesus, what a great deal. What does God say? This is my son. Not a prophet. My son who I love, with whom I am well pleased. And then, friends, with full divine authority, God says, listen to him. He is not merely the newest one in the lineup of famous prophetic speakers. He is of an altogether different kind. God's climactic word. God's final word. Now, listen to me. This is really important. It doesn't mean that we no longer appreciate Moses and Elijah. It's not that we're to say that we no longer regard the Old Testament scriptures. It is to say that we must recognize that a progression has been made in the history of redemption. From promise to fulfillment. From anticipation to reality. From shadow to substance. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of the promises of God. What promises are we talking about? The promises of the Old Testament, all of the promises of God in Christ are done, finished. And the point being, if this is the fulfillment, if, if the fulfillment has come, if the re reality has come, if the substance has arrived, why would you ever go back to the shadows? Why in the world would we ever return to animal sacrifices? Friends, knowing that the Lamb of God has already been slain. A movement away from the substance back to the shadow is not just kind of another option that we might opt for from time to time. It is a movement away from the actual salvation that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And that is, that is why you see interspersed throughout this book, the book of Hebrews, there are several strong pastoral warnings. Some of the most severe warnings in all of sacred scripture. And basically they all say this. Don't go back. Don't go back. You've come out of the shadow into the light. Don't step back into the darkness. Jesus is better. He is better. And that's the word that is used over and over and over again throughout this book. It establishes the theme of this book. Jesus Christ is better. He's better than everything. Better than the prophets. Better than the angels. Better than Moses. Better than Joshua. Better than the Aaronic priests. Better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Better than the Old Covenant. He is better than everything. Why would you ever want to go back? The burden of this book is to establish the unequal greatness of the Son of God. And in so doing, to arouse within Christians who are on the verge of returning back to their former manner of life because they 
think to do so will make life easier for them. And frankly, it would make life easier for them. And so let me ask you, this book has been written for us. Have you been tempted as of late to go back? To return to your former manner of life? Because to your way of thinking, it sure would make it, make it easier, your present experiences of life easier, I mean, maybe Judaism isn't the draw for you. Maybe it's a lifestyle of pleasing your appetites. Given over to those appetites altogether. Maybe it's a lifestyle that you, that's given over to self, rank selfishness. Or the whole soul pursuit of sexual indulgence. Or the whole soul pursuit of financial prosperity or success at any cost. Let me ask you something this morning. Has the gospel placed stresses or demands on your marriage or your relationships that frankly you'd like to live without? Has the gospel placed certain boundaries within your conscience that will no longer allow you to make compromise that on the one hand might fatten your wallet or advance your career or increase your popularity? And young men and women, I can understand the temptation. If I were not a Christian, I could cheat on this test. I could lie to my friends. I could steal from my parents. I could, I could give in to sexual temptation. It would be so much easier for me to give myself over to those inclinations that seem to be so native and natural to me personally. Have those temptations been part of your experience in recent weeks? You must not go back. You must not go back. You say, fine. Fine. But then, how do I cope with the difficulties and the stresses and the disappointments and the persecutions that come from naming the name of Christ? I'll tell you how. It's by giving yourself a fresh vision of the unequaled greatness of your Savior. And friends, when you see Him in all of His beauty, you will not want to go back. If you want to go back, then you don't know Him. God's greater word has come. Not this time on hard cold, unbending tablets of stone, but in a person, the highest form of divine disclosure, God's own Son. Now, what makes this last and final word from God so great, so superior? Let me suggest to you this morning seven features of the unequaled greatness of the Son of God. You ready? All right, I heard one yes. One, he is the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. 
Look at, look at verse 2. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Now, my friends, in, in light of what the writer has just said, this, this makes perfect sense. He is God's Son. We know from the rest of the Bible, God's only Son. Well, sonship naturally evolves into heirship. Of course, we know from the rest of the Bible that Jesus Christ is the eternal second person of the Godhead. And because of who He is, in His essential nature, everything that exists belongs to Him anyway. But you see, as a consequence of his redemptive accomplishments, as a reward for his leaving the glories of heaven, taking human flesh to his deity, coming to this earth in absolute submission to the will of his Father, it's, it's what we just celebrated in Christmas, right? He, even to, to the point of his death, he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, and when he arrived in that place, according to Psalm 2, in a great coronation ceremony, he was declared, appointed, heir of all things. It's not just a statement of fact, it's a title of dignity. And it shows us, church, that he occupies the supreme place in all of the universe. So practically speaking, what does this mean? Do you realize that every single thing that has ever been created has been created for Jesus Christ? The stars were created for his pleasure. The solar systems were created for his pleasure. We appreciate looking up at the stars at night, don't we? We're amazed at how beautiful they are. And of course, according to Psalm 19, they do tell us something of the glory of God. But on the final day, my friends, the stars and the solar systems and all that we can see have been created not for our pleasure, but for the pleasure of Jesus himself. Do you realize that the angelic realm has been created for him? The animal kingdom has been created for him. Every tree, every mountain, every ocean has been created for him. His pleasure, this planet, every single person on it, including you, has been created for his pleasure. Jesus Christ. There's a hymn, it's an old hymn, it's called Thou Art Worthy. You might be familiar with it. Thou Art Worthy. Thou art worthy, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, glory and honor, glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created, hast all things created, Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are created. Thou art worthy, O Lord. Everything that has been made from the largest galaxy to the tiniest microbe has been made for him, for his glory. And listen to me now. One day, 
every single thing that is will consciously serve that purpose. And I say consciously because even at this very moment, today, even the person who persists in rejecting Jesus Christ and, and defying God serves the purposes of God. They may not recognize it, but they do. And you may sit here this morning in dead set rebellion against God and His will, but you're a puppet in His hands. He is using you to accomplish His goal and His purpose. For example, John chapter 11. There's an evil, wicked, unbelieving man in a high-profile religious position. A man by the name of Caiaphas who finally gets so tired about all this Jesus business that he calls a meeting and says, you know what? It is better that one man should die for the nation. Now you see, friends, Caiaphas spoke better than he knew. Because what... What for him was political expediency was the very thing that secured your redemption. It perfectly fulfilled the design and plan of God. Even those who persist in rejecting Jesus Christ unknowingly serve His will perfectly. And ultimately, on that great and final day, they do so knowingly. Because we're told... In the most repeated verse from the Old Testament to the New, on the great and final day, God the Father, after making all the enemies of Jesus Christ a footstool for his feet, will finally put to death the last enemy, which is death. He is the heir of all things. It means that he is the supreme person in all the universe. Why? Would you turn away from him? Second, he is, or he's the creator of the universe. He is the creator of the universe. Verse 2 again. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. And here's the peace through whom also he made the worlds. He made the universe. He is heir of the universe, but he is the heir of the universe that he made himself. My friends, do you realize what a statement this is? I mean, we can say this all the time. It's part of our confession, but I'm afraid we don't fully understand its magnitude. On your best day, with all the brilliance that humanity could give you, you can even create a particle of dust. This Son of God spoke, and the universe came into existence. This past week, I was reading about uh, the Stephen Hawking. He was a Cambridge physicist. He's been called... He's passed away now, but he's been called, quote, the most brilliant theoretical physicist since Einstein. He said that our galaxy is 100,000 light years in diameter. 100,000 light years. What in the world is a light year? 
Well, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. If you multiply that times 60, you got a light minute. If you multiply that times a year, you've got a light year. If you traveled 186,000 miles per second, where you would end up in one year would be a light year's travel. Our galaxy, 100,000 light years in diameter, about 600 trillion miles, possessing 100,000 million stars, through whom he made the worlds. Hawking said that our galaxy is one of 100 million galaxies, 100,000 million galaxies, each of about 600 trillion miles in diameter, each possessing 100,000 million stars, through whom he made the universe. Hawking's estimated that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light years away. Since he died, that number has been increased to 13.4 billion light years as new information has come forth. So it keeps on growing. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. There is one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came. Charles Spurgeon said, I can see him standing at the anvil of omnipotence, and with every stroke of his majestic arm, sparks fly into the air becoming, that become stars poised in space. Through him, all things came into being. To turn away from him is to turn away from the one who has given you life, the one who has allowed your existence. And my dear friends, if this one who by sheer spoken word called into existence 100,000 million galaxies, then by, with one spoken word, he can very easily create within you a clean heart and a right spirit. Why in the world would you turn away of the, from this one of unequal greatness? Third point. He is the radiance of divine glory. He is the radiance of divine glory. Has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory. That starts verse 3. Who being the brightness of his glory. Other translations say the radiance of divine glory. What is that? We have to be careful because we're dealing with things that we can't fully understand. And so I've asked myself as I prepared this sermon, 
How can I explain this as simply as possible? And the beauty is we have the record of the Old Testament to help us. The visible glory of God was seen by Moses in a bush that burned but was not consumed. Take off your shoes, Moses, it's holy ground. It was seen by that pillar of fire that led the people of Israel out of Egypt. It came down that mountain at Sinai where God gave the law. And if you remember, what an awesome sight that was. People couldn't even get near that mountain nor touch it lest they perish. It came upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. And the visible glory of God came upon the temple in Jerusalem. And on both occasions, when the visible glory of God presented itself, the priest couldn't even get near those places lest they be consumed. But the primary location of the visible glory of God was in a cube, a place inside the temple called the Holy of Holies. And inside that most holy place rested the Ark of the Covenant, And on top of that ark was the mercy seat. And on either side of that mercy seat were cherubim. Those are angels which are associated with the presence of God. And there above the mercy seat, placed between the cherubim, was the visible manifestation of the glory of God, the most holy place on this planet. You touch that box, you die. You peek inside that box, 50,000 die the visible manifestation of the glory of God. Can you imagine the sensation of the Jewish reader of the Gospel of John when he reads this? And the Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. What was going through His mind? And we beheld His glory. You know what the writer is trying to say to us? You want to see the visible glory of God? You look in the face of Jesus Christ. Colossians says, He is the image of the invisible God. That visible glory brought so much fear to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration that they fell to the ground in abject dread. That visible glory of God appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and he was blind for days. That visible glory of the resurrected Christ appeared to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, Revelation chapter 1, and he fell to the ground like a dead man. This is who Jesus is, church. The greater word has come to us. It is the very image of the glory of God. Why would you turn from this person of unequal greatness? Point four. In verse three. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person He, Jesus, is the facsimile of God's nature. Jesus is the facsimile of God's nature. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation or the exact imprint of His being. 
That phrase, exact representation, the expressed image, is just one word in the original text. And in the ancient world, when you did a business deal and it was consummated, a document would be drawn up, and in our world, we place a signature at the bottom, right? At the bottom of that document, um, he, they would melt some wax, and you would press the image of your personal stamp into that wax, and you'd lift up your hand, and that image on the wax was an exact representation of the image on your ring. What's the point? When we see Jesus, we see God's very nature. And so you see, there is no place, in, no place for a person who says this, and I've heard it before. Well, I love God. I'm just not very interested in this Jesus business. I like God. I, I, just, I just don't like what I see in Jesus. I've heard it before. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but yeah, I, I don't really follow all the Christ stuff. I want to say something to you. If you don't like what you see in Jesus, then the God you like is a figment of your imagination. Or in contrast, there's the person who says, well, I like Jesus. I just don't like the God that I read about in the rest of the Bible. I like the Jesus of the New Testament. It's the God of the Old Testament that I really don't want to have anything to do with. Well, then I submit to you again that the Jesus you like is a concoction of your own creativity, your own imagination. Paul in Colossians 2 says this, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. He is equal to the Father. There is nothing of God that you will not find in Jesus Christ. He is not the chief angel. He is not the greatest of all created beings. He is the eternal God who has come to us in human flesh. Why would you turn away from him for any other thing? Fifth, he is the Lord of providence. He is the Lord of providence. I love this one. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the, power, by the word of his power. Friends, Jesus is the creator of the universe, but in saying that, we have to be very careful that we're not to think of Jesus as the God of the deist. It was very popular in the 18th century and actually kind of gaining some ground here. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was a deist. Very, very popular in the 18th century. The god of the deist is the god who winds a clock and then backs away and lets it all work itself out. Jesus, on the other hand, is intimately involved with his creation. His fingerprints are all over it. I'm told, for example, that the sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And I've heard that if we were any closer to the sun, that we would burn up. Any further away, and we would freeze. That our globe is tilted on an exact angle of 23 degrees, providing us with four seasons. If there were no tilts to the earth... 
Vapors from the oceans would move north and south, and the entire planet would be covered with continents of ice. If that the moon did not retain its exact distance from the earth, ocean tides would completely inundate the earth twice a day. That if the ocean floors were merely just a few feet deeper than they are, carbon dioxide and oxygen balance of the Earth's atmosphere would completely be upset so that no human or animal or plant life could exist. That if our atmosphere, as it presently is, did not maintain its density but thinned out even just a little bit, all the meteor, meteors that, that now harmlessly burn up when they hit our atmosphere would constantly, continually, unceasingly bombard us. So how does the universe exist in this incredibly delicate balance? He upholds or sustains, your version might say, all things. But friends, I want to tell you something. And this is where I think it gets so exciting because this word upholds or sustains in your translation is a bit misleading. See, we're not to think of Jesus like the Greek god Atlas you may be seeing pictures of Atlas with upholding the world on his shoulders. This word here is not a static kind of thing. It's a dynamic kind of thing that includes the idea of movement, of carrying something forward or towards its appointed end. It's what we mean by the term providence. You've probably all seen the movie or the series or read the book. Anne of Green Gables. Have you read that? If you're not familiar with the story, it's about a spinster woman and her brother. They wind up bearing the responsibility for care of a young girl. They don't want her at first. They don't want to have anything to do with her. But over time, she captures their hearts, and she grows into a young woman. And they finally take her to the train station to send her off to college. And when, when, and when she's going away, the tears are coming down both of their face. The brother says, we didn't even want her. We sure were lucky. And his sister turns to him and says, it wasn't luck that brought her to us. It was providence. Jesus Christ did not only create everything, he not only preserves everything, he guides every single thing in the universe to its intended destiny. Every single thing that comes to pass on this planet, friends, is a manifestation of his providential lordship. Every single intimate detail of your life. And guess what? He does it all effortlessly. By his powerful rhema word. No stress, no sweat, no anxiety, no second guessing, no hesitation, no burden, no ulcers, no effort. Will you turn your back on the Lord of Providence? Sixth, he is the successful high priest. Who, 
being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the power by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high church sin does many things to us we could take a year of sunday to talk about the effects of sin on us. But among the most significant effects that the Bible mentions is that sin defiles us. Do you realize that in the eyes of God, sin makes us more filthy to Him than a dirty stable? It pollutes us. The problem is, everything about God is clean. It's brilliantly white. Not even the slightest impurity is allowable in his presence. We need purification. But how do we get clean? Well, in the Old Testament, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so the priests in the Old Testament would offer sacrifices. In fact, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice every morning and every evening. And in one day a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, a man would enter the Holy of Holies, the high priest, and he would speak, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. It brought about a kind of external cleansing, but it really didn't do the job. And so over and over and over again, that priest would offer a sacrifice. I don't know if you've ever paid any attention to it, but it's interesting to consider the furniture on the inside of that temple. On the inside of the Holy of Holies is just one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. But on the outside of that little cube, when you stepped through that veil, there was the holy place. And there, there was an altar for incense. There was a table for the, the bread of presence. Ten lampstands with golden cups for oil. Two decorative pillars with chains and bowls attached. Interesting and beautiful. But a lot of work went on inside that temple. Men moving inside that place every single day, every morning, every night, during feast times, as many as 500,000 families offering a lamb. Seems to me that a piece of furniture is missing from that scene. Some place to sit down. Maybe a bench. But when God gave his prescriptions for the furniture inside that temple, there was no chair. Why? Because it would never be appropriate for a priest to sit down. Why? Because he couldn't rest. It was never appropriate for a priest to rest. Why? Because his work of purification was never done. All of those offerings could not cleanse one single person of even the tiniest of sins. But in, the, but in these last days, God has spoken again in his own Son, the greater priest, Jesus Christ. And when that lamb was slain, Jesus, you see, 
for the very reason that he is who he is, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, he could utter from the cross a cry that had never been heard before. It is finished! He was buried in a tomb. He raised on from the dead, ascended into the real Holy of Holies, and for the first time in the history of redemption, a priest could sit down. Why? Because purification had been made. The work of cleansing was done. Now, are you going to go back to your former life? Are you going to look to find cleansing for your sins in any other source? How can you go back? To do so is to imperil your own soul. This is God's climactic word, church. This is the irresistible Christ. Is your heart so hard that you can remain unmoved by this this morning? Can you continue laissez-faire and apathetic and unmoved and emotionless? You ought to be weeping right now or you ought to be dancing for joy. But if you are unmoved, then you are in great danger because being emotionless about this is equivalent to being dead. There is a place for a felt Christ. And if you don't know him, your only hope is to find some other way of cleaning yourself up. And trust me, there is no other way. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of the universe. He is the radiance of divine glory. He is the facsimile of God's nature. He is the providential Lord. He is the successful high priest. And finally... Number seven, he is the reigning king. He is the reigning king. The last part of verse three. And when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down. Where? At the right hand of of the majesty in heaven. He sat down at the supreme place in all of the universe. In the ancient world, the right hand of the monarch symbolized royal power, absolute authority, unparalleled glory. Brothers and sisters, at the accomplishment of his purifying work, Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he sat down at his Father's right hand to reign. And one day, he will leave that throne again. He will return to this place as king to judge. The unequaled greatness of God's Son, God's final word. He is heir of all things. You belong to him. He is the creator of the universe. He made you. He is the radiance of divine glory. To walk away from him in any direction is descent. He is the facsimile of God's nature. All you need to know about God, you will find in Jesus. He is the providential Lord. 
All of your ways have been marked out by his design. He is a successful high priest. Purification for your sin can be found in no other source. And finally, he is the reigning king. The one to whom you owe ultimate allegiance. The one to whom every man, every woman, every boy, every girl will one day bow. Now, you must not walk away. You must not turn back. You must not. And for those of you this morning who are apart from Christ, if the Spirit of the living God has been at work at your heart and you have suddenly found Jesus Christ to be irresistible, you must come. You must receive Him. And don't wait. You must do it now. You're not promised tomorrow. Don't turn from the privilege that God has given you. Come to the irresistible Christ. God's final word. There is no other. Receive him today. Will you bow your heads with me? Dear Jesus, you are the irresistible Christ. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, if there's anyone here who by your spirit has been nudged or persuaded this morning, Lord, I pray that they would repent and put their trust in you, that they would not, would not um, wait. We're not promised tomorrow, Lord. So, Lord, I pray that you would drag them to your cross. They would repent and put their trust in, in the only hope they have, Jesus Christ, your Son, the one of unequal greatness. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We ask that we can focus on running this race this year, that we all will make our... Um, our minds up to do something for you, Lord. That we all would glorify you. That this church would glorify you this upcoming year. You're a good God and we love you. In Jesus' matchless name we pray. Amen.